morning. Let me invite your attention to Second Samuel chapter six, talking about the life of David. A little bit different focus on David than maybe you would think, but uh, this is going to be very relevant for us in the room and those who are watching today. Have you ever made any mistakes in life? All of us would say yes and a hearty amen to that. Uh, some mistakes are minor and others are major. I'll never forget when I was first introduced to eBay. Didn't really know much about it. Somebody just told me you can buy stuff really cheap and pennies on the dollar. So I thought, well, that's, that's kind of my deal. So I started looking at things on eBay and I found this item and I was interested in it and I made a, a bid on it. And lo and behold, I won the item and I was excited about it. And then I read the fine print. I just made the down payment on the item. The real purchase price was coming. That was a major, major mistake. Thank the Lord for his grace. I was able to get in touch with the owners of that particular thing and to say, I really didn't realize that, and they let me off the hook, and so thank the Lord for that. Uh, Wednesday, Angie and I celebrated 37 years of marriage, and someone sent us a text message. Thank the Lord. And uh, someone sent us a text message, and I responded back, and here's literally what I typed in the text message. Thank you. The Lord has been good to us for sure. Now, let me say this. The devil is not your friend. He's your foe. He wants to destroy you. And can I say this? Autocorrect is not your friend either. Autocorrect will mess up your life if you're not careful. And so I just simply type back, thank you. The Lord has been good to us for sure. Thank the Lord. I looked at that message before I hit send. Because when I looked down at the message, it said, thank you. The slots have been good to us for sure. How in the world did that ever happen? There's a lot of difference between the Lord and slot machines. We don't gamble, so you have to be careful. Before you hit send, make sure you read the message before you do that. Some mistakes are minor and others are very, very major. Uh, Yesterday, Ann's and I yesterday afternoon putting two patio furniture chairs together. Jesus, have mercy on us for trying to do that. And I'm pretty confident, I said two or three times as we're trying to do that, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. But I wanted to do it right. I didn't want to do it wrong. I wanted to do it right. Those chairs need to be put together the right way. Second Samuel chapter 6, here's what's happening in the life of David. David had the desire to do the right thing, and that was to get the ark of God, to get it from the enemy's hands and back to the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Here was David's sin. David wanted to do the right thing. He just did it the wrong way. We're going to learn from that. And here's what I want us to know as we look at this message as we walk through this. As we think about how God works, does God care about the message that we share? He does. The message never changes. It's always the truth of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. It is always the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be saved other than Jesus himself. The message never changes. But let me say this today as well. Methods will change, and they do change, but please understand, God cares about the methods as well. We need to make sure that we do the right thing the right way. Now, as we think about David, David is a major, major personality in the Bible. And if I ask you to say something about David's life, many of you would be able to do that, to say he was a shepherd boy, authored under the Holy Spirit's leadership, Psalm 23. David committed sin, adultery with Bathsheba. We also know that he 
uh, orchestrated the murder of a man because of that. But David in Psalm 51 ultimately confessed his sin, agreed with God, and asked God to forgive him and to restore him and to use him. We can say all those things about the life of David. But when you and I look at the life of David, uh, what did God say about David in Acts chapter 13? Here's what, here's what the Lord said. David talks about him. He said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who would do all of my will. What an incredible word from God about David. He's a man after my own heart. Now, what in the world does that mean when you say he's a man or she's a woman after my own heart? Fill in these two blanks here. Number one, what does it mean? You care about the things God cares about in life. I mean, David cared about what God cared about in life. And here's same for us. If we're going to pursue the heart of God and we're going to be known as a person after the heart of God, then we need to care about what God cares about. So what does God care about? He cares about lost people. So we need to care about lost people. God cares about marriages. We need to care about marriages. God cares about holiness. We need to care about holiness because he said, be holy as I am holy. God cares about families. He cares about the church. He gave the life of his only begotten son. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But he also cares about unity and we need to care about unity as well. And so we care about the things God cares about in life. Second statement, you're sensitive to God's leadership and discipline. When you follow the leadership of God and you're, you're a person after his own heart, you're going to follow and you're going to be sensitive to God's leadership, but also to his discipline. What do I mean by that? When you look at David in 2 Samuel 6, God's leadership was to get the ark of God, to get it from Abinadab's house and get it back to Jerusalem where it needs to be because it's the very focus of worship, true worship. David, again, wanted to follow God's leadership and do the right thing. He just did it the wrong way. As you and I think about life and you think about God's leadership, how are you following the leadership of God? And then I get personal in my own life. How am I following the leadership of God in my own personal life, but also as a pastor of this church? How are we following the leadership of God? Let me, let me just pull back the curtain for a moment and give you some insights where I'm seeking God's direction and I want to make sure as I seek God's direction with many other leaders in this church that we not only do the right thing, we make sure we do it the right way. When it comes to the faith building and faith facilities, we are seeking the heart and the leadership of God because we want to make sure we handle those facilities the right way and for the right purpose. When I think about our vision statement, we exist to worship God, to worship God and love people and share Jesus and make disciples. We want to do that for the glory of God. We want to do the right thing, but we also want to do it the right way. And then when I think about the next generation, I think about preschoolers and kids and students and collegiate students, young folks. We want to make sure we are investing in the next generation. We're serious about it. When it comes to finding a next generation pastor, when it comes to raising up leaders and more workers and more insight into that, we want to make sure we do the right thing the right way because we know God wants to use this generation for his glory, seeking to be used of God. And then you look at the life of David when it's about leadership, it's also about discipline because here's a man after God's own heart, but here's something about his life. Even though he was a man after God's own heart and God said he would do all of my will, David sought to do the right thing the wrong way. 
And you and I know this very true, for we can do the right thing the wrong way as well. You look at David, a man after his own heart, still committed a sexual sin, an inappropriate relationship. And believe me, if it's not for the grace of God, we could do the same thing as well. And David even orchestrated murder to cover that sin up. And if David, a man after God's own heart, would do that, you and I could do the same thing as well. But we also know David, a man after God's own heart, As he was convicted about his sin, he came before God and he confessed his sin, repented of his sin, and he asked God to restore him as well. And as God did that in the life of David, he'll do the same thing in our lives as well. If we will come before him with brokenness, repentance, and confession, God will restore us like he did David. That's what it means to be someone after the heart of God. So I want to walk through this. How can we make sure from 2 Samuel chapter 6 in the life of David, how can we make sure that we do the right thing the right way, not the right thing the wrong way? How can we do that? I want to walk through this. Number one, pay attention to the small details. Uh, I've had the opportunity a couple times to play one of the most famous golf courses literally in the world. And when I was on the property of that golf course, it was overwhelming to be there. But here's one of the things I noticed because I'm always looking around and seeing how things operate. I noticed this, this golf course, those who run the place, they pay attention to the smallest details possible. And what that means is if you're going to be a leader or you're going to, to give direction and guidance to something, you need to make sure you pay attention to the small details. Why are so many people not living effective in life? They're not paying attention to the small details. Why are so many marriages turned upside down? It's because they're not paying attention to the little foxes in the vineyard. Why are so many families dysfunctional? They're paying attention to the small details. Why are so many churches busy with activities and programs, but still not making a kingdom difference? They're not paying attention to the small details. I encourage you in life, if you're going to do the right thing the right way, pay attention to the small details because those details matter. Let me ask you this. If you decide in your life uh, that you're not going to take care of your physical health, what's that going to do to you? How's that going to influence you? If you decide that you're going to have an inappropriate relationship with someone else, what is that going to do to your life? If you decide that you're going to relate with the Lord Jesus Christ in a casual, nominal way, what is that going to do with your walk with him? If you will think decisions through the small details, if I do this, what does it mean? How's it going to influence me? How will it affect somebody else? It will make a significant difference in your life. Now, let me give you these two insights. Number one, impulse decisions are often costly. When you make impulse decisions, some of them are okay, but many of them will cost you significantly when you make impulse decisions. Look at the second, godly counsel is priceless. It is valuable to have godly people around you whom you can look in the eyes and say, can you speak the truth of God into my life? What do you sense God's doing in my life? What do you sense God's doing in this situation? What do you believe God wants me to do in this situation or us to do in this situation? But again, godly counsel is priceless. Now, David here, again, look in verse 1. David, again, gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 of them, and he talks about this Bali Judah, and he goes to bring up the ark of God from there, going to bring it back to the city of Jerusalem. And as they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it into the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, Uzzah was there, Ohio was there, not the state Ohio, but Ohio was there. 
The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. So here they are doing what God wanted, get the ark from there to Jerusalem, but, but doing it the wrong way. I want you to give some insight. What in the world is the ark of God? I've given you three other statements here. I want you to write down what was inside this ark. Number one is manna. And so you may want to write out beside that, God will meet every need you have in life. That's what the manna represents. God provided for his people every single day. Not what you want necessarily, but what you need. Manna is a, is a testimony to say God will meet every need of your life. Second is Aaron's staff. What does that mean? He uses people. God wants to use you. He saved you and he's gifted you and he's left you here on earth. Why? So that he wants to use you in the Christian life. Not just to sit back and watch others serve. He wants to use you in the Christian life. We'd love to see you invest in the ministries of this church. Financially, yes, but also with your time, with your giftedness and serve Christ. Aaron's staff just says he uses people. And then thirdly, the Ten Commandments. When you look at the Ten Commandments, here's what that means. God cares how you and I live in life. When I look at preschoolers and kids and students and and young adults and adults, when I look at your lives, God cares how you live your life. God cares the decisions you make. God cares what you do with your body. God cares what you put into your mind. God cares about how we live. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. God cares how you and I live. Let's go back to David for a moment. Here was the serious sins of David's life. What did I say just a moment ago? Impulse decisions are often costly and godly counsel is priceless. When you look at David, David made an impulse decision that we're going to go there to the house of Abinadab, we're going to get the ark, we're going to put it on a cart, and we're going to go back to Jerusalem. Here's what David said. The right thing to do is to get the ark back to Jerusalem. He didn't care how he was going to do that. And he said, David, but you got to realize God cares how you did that. It was an impulse decision. He wanted to do the right thing. He just did it the wrong way. God never said, you transport the ark of God on a new cart. He said... You transport the ark of God on the shoulders of leaders, not on a new cart, but on the shoulders of Levites, the Kohathites. You you transport it by those individuals. God was clear about the message, but also the methods. David made an impulse decision. I'd also say this, David did not seek out godly counsel. And here's what I mean with that. When you look in the word of God, when David was going to war or battle against the Philistines or whoever it may be, he always sought God and said, God, what do you want me to do? Are you going to give the victory? And God would give him the green light or the red light. He sought the heart of God. But in this context, he sought men. He didn't seek God about how to get the cart from from Abinadab's house to Jerusalem. He did something, an impulse decision, just did it the wrong way. And I want to encourage you in your life, whatever age you are, if you're going to, again, if you're going to do the right thing the right way, pay attention to the small details. Are you doing it the right thing? Are you doing it the right way? Guard against impulse decisions, but also seek out godly counsel. Let people, the people of God, speak into your life about what you're getting ready to do. Pay attention to the small details. Number two, allow biblical truth to influence life. Life and leadership are about influence. And those influences can be positive or negative in life. Who is influencing you in your life? 
Who's influencing your marriage? Who's influencing your family? Who's influencing this church? Who's influencing our leadership? Influence makes a difference. Now, write these words down. Who or what influences us? And I've given you three here. One is people. People will either influence us in a positive way or a negative way. And here's what I can tell you. It makes a difference whom you connect your life with in this life. Your friends matter. They'll build you up or they will tear you down. Here's what I can say. I can see people, and I see them all the time, that they're fearfully and wonderfully made. God wants to use them. They have great spiritual potential, and they have the abilities and the giftedness to do so much for the kingdom of God. But I see people living way, way below than their God-given potential. Why? Because of the people around them. They're negative influencers. Here's what I mean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, the Bible says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Your friends will build you up or your friends will tear you down. Your friends will wreck your life or your friends will draw you closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are you hanging around with? Who's influencing you in your life? I've also seen on the other side individuals who are spiritually soaring in the Christian life. God was using these individuals in great ways. Why? They had connected themselves with other godly believers who were building them up, discipling them, pushing them to say, you make sure your yes is on the table. You do everything God asks you to do. And God is using their lives in incredible, incredible ways. Can I just say, if you're going to soar like an eagle, you can't hang out with pigeons. If you're going to soar like an eagle, you need to hang out with some other eagles. And so make sure people are going to influence us. Make sure you're around people who are going to build you up, draw you close to Christ, and who's going to challenge you to live by faith and not by sight. Second, culture. Culture is going to influence us. You have to realize there's a secular culture. There's also a spiritual culture. And I can promise you this, there are companies out there spending billions upon billions upon billions of dollars to influence you in your life and influence me. Here's what they're trying to do, influence us. You need to drive this, you need to wear this, you need to look like this. They're doing everything they can to influence you and me. The secular culture wants your life and understand this, they want your kids and your grandkids as well. But what about the spiritual culture? Who are we influencing? to say God's word is true. Be faithful to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to him. Say yes to his leadership. Let him stretch you and grow you and use you. Live by faith, not by sight. Or how are we being influenced in the Christian life? Then the third one is truth. Truth should always influence you and me, the truth of God's word. What does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about family? What does the Bible say about finances? What does the Bible say about parenting? What does the Bible say about work? We should always ask God, let your truth, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, God, let your truth influence my life and my walk with you. Let's walk through this. Number one, disobedience affects other people. Now, in chapter 6, we see David again getting these 30,000 people together. They go down to Benedict's house. They get this ark. They put it on a new cart. They didn't use an old one. They use a new one. And they start out oxen pulling it. And here we go with Uzzah and Ohio traveling along as well. And all of a sudden, what happened? David's disobedience is going to affect other people around him. 
All of a sudden, we don't know exactly how, but the oxen kind of stumble. And when the oxen stumbled, the cart looked like it was going to turn over. And Uzzah reached out and touched a hold of the ark. And what happened to him? He died just like that. He touched the ark of God and lost his life. David's disobedience affected other people. Nathan came and what? Said, David, your sins have found you out. His sin with Bathsheba and the consequences of that, trying to cover it up, influenced who? Bathsheba's husband. He lost his life because of David's disobedience. So your disobedience will not only influence your life, it's going to affect other people around you. I've seen this again and again when pastors fall, whether it's by morals or money, it not only affects that pastor, it affects his family, it affects the church family, it affects the community, it affects the kingdom of God. Your decisions, your sins will affect other people in life. And so David is testifying to that. His action of doing the right thing the wrong way cost Uzzah his life. Look at number two, absolute truth does exist. When you look at the word of God, you realize, is there absolute truth? We're living in a day where many people say absolute truth does not exist and they're just simply wrong because the Bible is filled with absolute truths. And some people are going to look at you in the eyes and they're going to say this, what's right for you may not be right for me. What's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. But what does the word of God say? The Bible testifies there are absolute truths in the Christian life. Here's what I mean by that. Now, if you could look at this story and you see David getting the ark of God from Abinadab's house, Obed gets to Obed-Edom's house before it ever gets to Jerusalem. But when he's moving it on his new cart, if God didn't have absolute truth, then Uzzah should not have died when he touched the ark. Because what does it say in, in the book of Numbers, chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 7, the Bible says anyone who touches the ark or anyone who touches the holy things of God, the Bible says God says his life will be over. And so if you could touch the ark of God and not die, then God's word was not true. But we know what? There are absolute truths. And God said if you touch the holy things, you touch the ark, you will lose your life. Here's what I mean by that. When I look at the word of God, the Bible's absolute truths. You can write this down. You can take it to the bank. You can make the deposit. Here's what the Bible says. Whatever you sow, you're also going to reap. If you sow to the sinful nature, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit of God, you will reap eternal life. Those are absolute truths for you and me. What does the Bible say in Romans chapter 10, verse 13? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is an absolute truth of God. If you're lost, Jesus Christ died on the cross and gave his life for you and shed his blood. If you will turn from your sin, you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and you surrender your life to him. You put all of your faith and trust in him. I promise you, Jesus Christ will save you because he's faithful to every promise he's made because God's word is filled with absolute truths. Look at number three, sins don't have to be repeated. After Uzzah lost his life and 
The ark was in Obed-Edom's house for three months and God was blessing that house and David didn't want that. So he finds himself back getting the ark again and finally they do it the right way. David, he, he found himself with a point of repentance and sins don't have to be repeated. Folks in this life, if you're seven years old or 17 years old or 77 years old, you can get off the merry-go-round. You don't have to go around the wheel. You can start over. He will forgive you and you can have a brand new start in life you don't have to live in habitual sin in the christian life jesus can set you free and change your mind your attitude your heart and the direction of your life if you will surrender to him confess to him repent and trust him it doesn't have to be repeated again and again and again so pay attention to those small details allow biblical truth to influence your life And then number three, commit to giving God the best. The story gets really interesting here. Because when you think about the story, the ark is really about worship. Not false worship, but true worship. Making sure the focus of worship is right. The focus is upon the holiness of God. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. So when it comes to to worship, giving God the best... When you evaluate your life, again, you could be a a kid, a student, or an adult. When you look at your life when it comes to worshiping Almighty God, are you giving Him the best of your life? How many of you are giving Him what's left over of your life? How many of you are giving Him something you don't need in this life? But how many of us today, honestly, before a holy, righteous, Almighty God can say, God, without any reservation... I am laying everything in my life down to you and God, I am giving you the best of everything. Are we worshiping him that way? Now I've given you six statements here that I want to focus on just for a moment here, but I want you to write these down because it's coming back to the heart of worship and for David, finally getting this thing right, getting the ark of God the heart of worship back to Jerusalem where it needed to be. Number one, expression honors God. When you look at this text, was David giving his best to the Lord? The Bible says in this text, David was leaping, dancing, celebrating. He was disrobing himself. I'm not advocating that here today in worship at all. But, but David was, was expression, was honoring unto God. Now again, I understand worship. Worship according to 1 Corinthians 14 should be done in order. Should not be chaotic. Should not be disrespectful. Should be done in order. I get that. But folks, when it comes to worshiping Almighty God, we should come into this gathering with one another and have expression when we worship God. And what do I mean by that? It's okay to bow down before Him. It's okay to... Lift your hands in adoration and praise to God. It's okay to clap your hands, not for the applause of people, but for the glory of God. It's okay to do that. But also realize this, when you evaluate expression, how do you see expression at concerts? How do you see expression at sporting events? And then how do you see expression in a worship gathering? I've seen videos of people when he was alive, Michael Jackson, and they would just see him and tears would just start flowing and they would fall on the ground, overwhelmed that they, their eyes just saw Michael Jackson. I've seen people recently, Taylor Swift, 
I mean, did everything they could, spent thousands and thousands of dollars just to be in her presence. That's expression when they're willing to do that. And folks, please understand. Are we more excited about what happens at a concert or a sporting event? Or are we excited about seeing Jesus Christ change the lives of people? God, help us if there's more expression at a concert or a sporting event than there is in a worship gathering of God's people when we are worshiping the holy God and seeing him change our lives. We need to come with God with expression. It honors God. Number two, worship is a witness. When you look at David, and here's interesting, in 2 Samuel 6, David here is worshiping with the people. Understand, David's not on a pedestal. They're not worshiping David. David is with the people and he's worshiping God with people. What do I mean by that? He's out there leaping and dancing with the people of God and they're celebrating that the ark of God left the house of of Abinadab and the house of Obed-Edom and now it's coming to the city of David, Jerusalem. They're celebrating, they're worshiping together. It is a witness as well because David's wife, Michael, is looking out the window and she is not happy by the way David is worshiping God. Worship is a witness. And I hope you realize other people are watching you and me worship. And when people come into this, there they're very well may be non-believers in this service. Uh, there are going to be non-believers who are, who are going to watch us online somewhere around the world. And so the way when we gather together as God's people, it's, 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 it's a witness to other people. And again, God, God forbid that they would see this church divided over the subject of worship. God forbid that they would see us come into a worship gathering like this and maybe in this room you can watch somebody or on a camera you can see somebody and we'd fold their arms and say, I'll never sing that song. God forbid we'd walk in there and say, I'm not going to dare carry my Bible into a place like that and worship God. I'm not carrying my Bible to do that. And then how many of us when we decide we're not even going to come We're going to stay at home. What is the witness to that to our neighbors and family and other people? Worship is a witness. When we come into this sanctuary and we sing, we bring God's word and we participate together, it is a powerful witness to other people who are believers or who are non-believers. We need to be a witness to other people. Number three, criticism isn't far away. When you start worshiping God with expression, you give him the best of your life, you can expect criticism is not far away of your life. And what happened in the life of David? David's wife was the one who criticized him. The Bible says she despised him in her heart. Now, when I read that, I wish I had time to deal with this. My time's running out. But I wish I had time to because in 1 Samuel chapter 18, you read this story about Saul and about Michael and then about David. And here's what the Bible says on two different occasions in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Here's what it says. Michael loved David. What in the world happened between 1 Samuel 18 and 2 Samuel chapter 6? On one hand, she loved him, and now it says she despised him in her heart. And when your spouse despises you in his or her heart, your marriage is not going well. But how did you get from loving him to despising him? I mean, how do couples in our day get from, I love you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, to now, I don't want to be in the same room with you? How do you get to that place? 
It happened for David and Michael. Criticism isn't far away, and she is criticizing David. And when you give your best to God, you surrender your life to him, you worship him with spirit and truth and with expression, you can expect criticism to be far away in your life. Walled up a story of the hotel. Miss, Miss Lady Astor one time, was she was in the House of Commons. I think maybe one of the first females to ever be in the House of Commons in history. Winston Churchill, tremendous leader. They didn't have good chemistry, so she said to Winston Churchill one day, she said, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your tea. That's pretty strong words, isn't it? She said that to Winston Churchill. What did he say? He responded back and he said, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. So, <laughs> criticism isn't too far away and so that's kind of the relationship between David and Michael she despised him that, in, 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 the, in the Hebrew text that is strong strong language number four focus matters in worship as we look at this text David finally gets his tent set up and the ark of God is inside the tent. It's where it needs to be. And the focus of worship is right because they're worshiping God. The New Testament, the ark of God for us, we're not talking about Noah's ark, we're talking about the ark of God. The focus for us, what? Is Jesus Christ. Let me just say to us this morning, the focus of worship should never be a style. The focus of worship should never be a building. The focus of worship should never be the clock. The focus of worship should not be any of those things. The focus of worship should be the Son of God and Savior of the world, our Messiah, our Redeemer, our Forgiver, our best friend, Jesus Christ. He's the focus of worship. Number five, food needs to be served. Now as Baptists, I'm speaking our language now. You've dialed into this point. David gets all the people together and he starts passing out bread and he passes out meat and cakes of raisins. He's feeding people. Food needs to be served. When I started in ministry, years in ministry, I wish we'd get back to this. I still love those days. I preached, I don't know how many revivals in those days. And I love summer revivals in country churches. You say, why'd you like that? They were some of the best cooks you'll ever meet in your life. And why in the summer, all that fresh vegetables and produce coming in, and they had all that at those picnics. Dinner on the grounds, potluck meals. Here David is in the midst of worship, they're serving food. Let me ask you, what are we serving people when they come into this place? Are we serving the, the, the milk of the word and the meat of the word? God help us that we never serve junk food in this place. And God, help every single one of us that when we gather with the people of God, we come to this gathering hungry for the truth of God. God, I may need milk or meat, but God, I come hungry to hear a word from you. Food needs to be served. Then number six, consequences follow an unresponsive heart. The Bible says here in the end, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death consequences what happened maybe they were never intimate again the Lord may have closed her womb but she never had a child to the day of her death there are consequences 
So let me just say, if you, if you come before God and you decide you're going to give him what's left over or what you don't need, there are consequences. If you come before God and you criticize those who are giving God their best and who are expressing heartfelt worship to God and you criticize them, there are consequences to that. David and Michael, consequences. Let me ask you today in this room, kids, students, adults, how many of you are seeking to do the right thing? You're just doing it the wrong way. And how many of you need to put the brakes on and say, God, no, 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 I don't want to go that direction. God, I want to do the right thing the right way. And a part of that, you just need to come with surrender and say, okay, God, now what's the right way? What's the right way? Let me just say the right way is surrender your life to Christ. The right way is to follow him in believer's baptism. The right way is to join the fellowship of a Bible-believing, mission-minded church. The right way is to say yes to the call of God if he's calling you to serve. The right way is to say, God, I've made a mess out of this. I need forgiveness. I need a brand new start. Those are the right things the right way. In this room and those who are watching, what's God calling you to do? And make sure by the life of David, you're doing it the, the right thing the right way. And the only way we can do that is because Jesus shed his blood and gave everything for you and for me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we uh, close this sermon, Lord, we close this sermon by an invitation. And the invitation is for people to do the right thing the right way as the Holy Spirit leads. Your word says, and Father, I pray today as our pastoral staff is here, as our prayer team is here, God, if somebody responds to us on a platform that they're watching on, Lord, we're going to respond back to them. But Lord, as people surrender, as they say yes to you in a private way, but God, you may be calling some to make a public decision as well. And God, I pray today that we'll do the right thing the right way in this invitation for your glory for your praise, for your honor. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for forgiveness and a new start. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.